short week, so there wasn't a lot that happened here at the church. Uh, some, some more things got stained and painted, and more tile went down, and those are definitely celebrations. But, but my celebration this week is very personal. Uh, being able to get away for two or three days at Thanksgiving, I didn't get a single text asking me to make a decision about anything. It was so nice. I didn't have to say put tile here or sheetrock there or paint color or electric uh, or, or sound or anything. It was lovely to uh, be able to, to actually rest for a, a couple of days. Back at it tomorrow. We are in the home stretch, so I'm told. It's a long home stretch, though. So we'll, we'll see what happens. Take your Bibles and turn to uh, Leviticus chapter 26. It's, it's where everybody preaches from at Christmas, Leviticus. Uh, let me remind you that two things. One, the new D-group Bible reading guides, church-wide reading guides, whether you're in a D-group or not, are on the back table and maybe at the connection table too, I'm not real sure. Um, but next week we start Ezekiel, uh, so we've got our reading plan for that, so make sure you're, uh, you, you have that so you can stay caught up. It starts tomorrow. Oh, the reading starts tomorrow, that's right. Next Sunday would be when, I, when we do our connect group study over it, and I would be preaching on Ezekiel if, if I weren't doing a Christmas series, so yeah. So the reading starts tomorrow, so make sure you... You grab that. And secondly, let me invite you all to our house this Saturday night from 4 to 8, our annual Christmas open house. This would be our fifth annual, I guess. Oh, eh, we skipped a year. We're not going to count that. Is this our fifth anyway? Okay, so minus the hurricane year, it's our, our, our fifth annual um, open house at 4 to 8. It is a come and go thing. You can stay as long as you want, uh, but you can just come and go. There will be plenty of food, and we would love to have you visit with us, have you in our home uh, this Saturday night, 4 to 8 p.m. That's December 4th. Leviticus chapter 26, verses 3 through 6 is where we're starting this morning. We're really kind of looking at the whole chapter. But we're looking at, for this Christmas series, Peace on Earth, tr- uh, Comfort in troubled times. Uh, we, I, I could preach this series at any point in any year, uh, and I think it would have application to where we are and what we are going through. But we're going to have to start at the beginning. This morning we are starting with the requirement for peace. There is a requirement for us to have peace. Now, we have, we've got some troubles, but nothing like what uh, our country was facing in the years 1941 to 1945 during World War II. Um, by uh, July 26th of 1945, uh, D-Day had happened. That would have been just, what, almost two months prior to that. I believe uh, VE Day had already occurred, if I'm not mistaken, um, by July uh, if not, it wasn't too long before victory in Europe was declared. And the, uh, the Prime Minister of China, um, President Roosevelt, and uh, let's see, I believe it was the Prime Minister of England, put together what was called the Potsdam Declaration. 
and that was sent to Japan on July 26, 1945. It was the Jap Japanese Instrument of Surrender. Now, they sent this to them, and it was, I think, 13 um, requirements that they had to go through, or, or 13 requirements, not the word they used. Um, I want to get it right here, because it was, it's just terms, that's the word, terms of their surrender. And it was basically, you stop fighting, um, or you're going to be annihilated. And Japan didn't really think that would happen, and turns out they were wrong. In August, uh, I believe on August 3rd, the first atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima, and August 6th, the second, was dropped on Nagasaki. They, uh, they took the Potsdam Declaration, Japan did, and said, eh, we'll think about it. Basically, uh, ignoring it by thinking about it is what they were, were doing. But the terms were pretty clear. Um, unconditional surrender. You don't, you don't get options. You don't get to negotiate. And they wanted to negotiate. Well, what about this? And what about that? And how about we do this? And, and the terms were clear. Unconditional surrender. As a matter of fact, it's, it, one of the terms stated, we hereby proclaim the unconditional surrender to the Allied powers of the Japanese Imperial General Headquarters and of all Japanese armed forces and all armed forces under Japanese control wherever situated. The Potsdam Declaration and, and the instrument of surrender, Japanese instrument of surrender, left no wiggle room. In order for the war to end, Japan had to surrender. They had to give up everything. The Allies didn't have to give up anything. That's a really good picture. This, what was required for peace for both sides, Japan would have peace, the Allies would have peace if Japan did these things. That is a great picture of the requirement for peace with God. See, God does not have to meet us halfway for peace to, to, to happen. God does not have to say, all right, I will do these things if you'll do those things. We'll kind of meet in the middle. That's not the way it is with God. There is a requirement for peace, and that requirement is unconditional surrender on our parts. Well, where do we see that? Where do we get that? Well, we go all the way back to Leviticus chapter 26. That's where we initially see this. Leviticus 26, 3 through 6, gets us started. God tells the people in Israel, His children, if you follow my statutes and faithfully observe my commands, I will give you rain at the right time, and the land will yield its produce, and the trees of the field will bear their fruit. Your threshing will continue until grape harvest, and the grape harvest will continue until sowing time. You will have plenty of food to eat and live securely in your land. I will give peace to the land, and you will lie down with nothing to frighten you. I will remove dangerous animals from the land, and no sword will pass through your land. The requirement for peace. God tells Israel exactly what needs to happen. And he does it in verse 3. If you follow my statutes and faithfully observe my commands. Now what's God talking about here? Well, verse 3, these statutes and commands that he was talking about, broadly, he's talking about Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. 
And those four books of the Bible contain no fewer than, and depending on who you talk to, maybe even a few more, 613 laws. The good rabbis, the best rabbis, learned them all. Knew every law that had to be followed in order to maintain peace with God. Now, not every law that was written in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy affected every individual. For example, there's a law on what sort of sacrifice a cured leper had to give at the temple. That's one of the 613 laws. Not everybody, as a matter of fact, very few of the people would have been a cured leper. So that law didn't have to be followed by everyone. But what was important is, in the community where there was a leprous individual that had been cured, the community then would encourage and be a part of that leper taking the sacrifice for his curing. And that community then would benefit from the blessings of him or her following the law. You extrapolate that out and you get the entire nation of Israel benefiting or falling on a law that not everybody had to follow. So there's this corporate obedience that was necessary, and that corporate obedience would lead to corporate blessings. Everybody's responsibility was everybody else within the community of faith. It was the, the people's responsibility to encourage, to, to make sure that you raise your children in the right ways. And, and the, uh, Deuteronomy told them how to do that. You made sure that everything was happening the way it was supposed to. The laws were being followed. And that's where you got the Pharisees. You got the ones that the interpreters, the, the experts in the law going around and wrapping people's knuckles if they weren't doing things the right way. Uh, that particular part was not set up in Scripture. They took that upon themselves to do that. But the intent behind it was actually a good one. The, the community, for lack of a better term, policing the community. Y'all, this is exactly what Paul tells us to do in the church. We are to spur one another on to good works. We are to encourage one another. Paul says in one place, what do I have to do with judging the world? That ain't my business. The lost people, they're lost. They're not of the community now. When we talk about the church, yes, I am responsible to judge one, the, the church just as the church is responsible to judge him and one another. It's, it, it, you see that come to fruition when he says, as I imitate Christ, imitate me. There's a judgment that goes on there. As the church looks to Paul, they say, okay, is Paul following Jesus? If he is, then we follow him. Is Paul imitating Jesus? If he is, then we imitate him. But if he is not imitating Jesus in this act, this whatever it was, then we don't follow him. We don't imitate him. So the Lord tells the nation of Israel, follow all the laws, do everything that, you're, that I've told you, Follow my statutes and faithfully observe my commands and you will have these blessings of peace. Right before that, the writer of Leviticus, Moses most likely, says, 
Do not make idols for yourselves. Set up a carved image or sacred pillar for yourselves or place a sculpted stone in your land to bow down before it. For I am the Lord your God. Have no idols. And verse 2, keep my Sabbaths and revere my sanctuary. I am the Lord. And worship only God. Don't set up idols and don't worship anything else. That's the summary of those 613 laws. If you follow my statutes, if you don't have another God and only worship me, basically he's saying you'll get all the 613. That's what we hear echoed by Jesus when when the teacher of the law said, Teacher, and I'm going to add a little bit to it, but which of the 613 laws, or, or even just the Ten Commandments, teacher, which is the most important? <laughs> got him now. He ain't never going to be able to pick one out of 613 because we've got to follow them all. It's important for the leper who's been cured to make this necessary sacrifice at the temple. And Jesus replies with the same sort of thing in Leviticus 26.1, or it says in Leviticus 26.1 or 26.3. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength which would keep you from setting up idols and worshiping anything else. But then he adds to it, the second is just like it, the second most important, most important is, it's not second, it's like right there next to it, love your neighbor as yourself. If you do those things, you'll get the 613 laws that you're trying to trip me up on. And the, the guy who was trying to trip up Jesus went away feeling really stupid. Statutes and commands. Unconditional surrender. If you follow my statutes and faithfully observe my commands, follow and faithfully observe, then he says in verses 4 through 6, you will have peace and other blessings. And, and the writer says, you know, I'll give you rain at the right time, the land will yield its produce, and the Trees of the field will bear bear their fruit. And and interestingly, verse five, um, there these seasons would normally be further divided by the weather and and whatever else was going on. But he says your threshing will continue until grape harvest, and the grape harvest will continue until sowing time. You will have plenty of food to eat and live securely in the land. You will have abundance. And all these seasons that you depend on, these cycles that you're used to, they're just going to run one into the other. So there are never any gaps. You're never wondering, oh my goodness, will we get the harvest? Or will we be able to sow the seed? Will it rain too much? Will it rain too little? Will there be any sort of uh, seasonal pestilence that we're used to? He says, no, you, it won't. You, you will live securely in your land. And verse 6, I will give peace to the land, and you will lie down with nothing to frighten you. I'll remove dangerous animals from the land, and no sword will pass through your land. So not only will your, your, your sowing and reaping, your harvest, your agriculture, your... your um, your uh, uh, livestock, not only will that be good, but there, there won't be anything coming in to take over. There, whether it's you know, animals, wolves, lions, 
bears and tigers, oh my, coming after your sheep or your, your cows or anything like that. But it, there also won't be the people. You won't be at war. You will be at peace. But remember that peace depends on everyone. It's not just one person. And without peace, these other little blessings, and I, we call them little blessings, they're not little blessings to have your pantry full and to have the financial, uh, your financial needs met and to not be at war. Those are, those are not minor in any sense. But while we might have peace with neighbors, if we aren't eating well, if there's not food on the table, if we don't have shelter, we're not really at peace, are we? We might not be fighting, but there's no peace when you're hungry or thirsty. This past year and a half, not a one of us that I'm aware of has taken up arms against anyone, and yet, have we had peace in the midst of a plague and a natural disaster? We may have had peaceful times, and if you're, you're th thinking, I had peace in my heart, well, you're getting ahead of me. Hold on. But we didn't have physical peace in this time. And so, without peace... Not only do you not have peace if you're not full, if you're not eating well, you also can have everything you think you need, but if you're at war, if you're worried that you're going to lose your son or daughter, if, you're, if there's constantly a fight, and let's not even say there, it's war with another country, let's just say you've got a jerk neighbor, or maybe you're the jerk neighbor. And if you've got family living next door to you, don't raise your hand. Um, because I know where some of y'all live, and eh, that'd be awkward. Uh, you know, you, you, you still might have everything you need, but don't have peace. So those blessings don't guarantee peace, and without those blessings, you certainly don't have peace. So there's this broad umbrella that the writer of Leviticus is saying, you receive peace. And all these things, Jesus would say, will be added to you. The writer would say, you get the, the blessings of the land and the livestock and uh, no more wars. Well, if that's what peace is, if, if peace is these things, and Leviticus has said, peace means your, your, your harvest is good, the land's good, your livestock's good, nobody's beaten up on you, then what is the opposite of peace? Well, the opposite of peace, biblically, is not just strife, but discipline. We may say, well, we're not at war, therefore we are at peace. But, as I said, if you're hungry, you're not at peace. If you're struggling to, to find a job, you're not at peace. Doesn't mean if that, that, that doesn't mean just because you're not at war that you aren't at peace. Biblically, in Leviticus, the lack of peace did not mean strife, it meant discipline. Now, let me do a little caveat right here. We are not an Old Testament people. We're not living in the Old Testament. So not every trial we experience, not every plague or natural disaster is discipline. Okay? The U.S. is not Israel. 
The U.S. is not God's chosen people or God's chosen country. So every time something bad happens to us doesn't mean that God is sending a judging trial on our country. But, but every trial can be disciplining. It doesn't mean it's God's discipline, but we can still be disciplined by it. We can still learn from it. We can still grow in our faith from it. And that's the picture we get of the Old Testament. Now, Jesus will discipline His church. We are promised that. Believers are promised that we will be disciplined. That our sins will find us out. But that happens much more on a, an individual and faith community level than it does on a country or um, political uh, geopolitical community level. So the opposite of peace then is not just bad things happening, but the opposite of peace biblically is discipline. So what does it look like? Well, in, in verses 14 through 41, God tells his people what that will look like. So verses 9 through 13. It goes on with some of the blessings. You'll, you'll, you'll never run out of food. You'll, I'll live among you. I won't reject you. I will walk among you and, and be your God. You will be my people. You'll, you'll no longer be slaves. Um, uh, I brought you out of Egypt that you would no longer be slaves. I broke the bars of your yoke and, and enabled you to live in freedom. And that will continue, God says. But verse 14 then says, but. Oh, that's a big but. And I can't lie. But if after these things you will not obey me. Really? You, you, you want to say, but, but there's no way we wouldn't. There's absolutely. God, if we had peace, you know, if I just finally. None of y'all have said this, but I, I'm sure I've thought it. If I finally had enough money to pay off everything then I would be more obedient. I'd give more. Or if I, if, if I had this, Lord, then I would follow You better. If, if these things would work out, then I would be able to worship You. If this happened, God, then. And we are not experiencing unconditional surrender. We are trying to negotiate terms. And Scripture says, God says, no, I will bless you if you obey my statutes and commands. But if you do not obey me and observe all these commands. Verse 18, but if after these things you will not obey me. Now verses 14 through 17, if you do not obey me and observe all these commands, I'm going to discipline you. Verse 18, but even if after even that you don't obey me, I'm going to discipline you. Then verse 21, and if you don't obey me after that, then I'm going to discipline you some more. And the discipline is ever increasing. Verse 23, and if you still don't turn to me, if you act with hostility toward me, then I'm going to discipline you all the way up to verse 27. And if in spite of this, you do not obey me, but act with hostility toward me, I will act with furious hostility toward you. You think you, you go, you, you think you're mad at me? Buddy, you ain't seen mad. Do you see God mad? 
what he's saying. You're coming at me with hostility, I'll show you furious hostility. I can one-up you every day of the week and twice on Sunday. God's telling the folks, or maybe it was Saturday back then, God's telling the folks in Israel, I will act with furious hostility toward you. I will also discipline you seven times for your sins. Listen to this, verse 29. You will eat the flesh of your sons. You will eat the flesh of your daughters. It happened. They resorted to cannibalism in the midst of a siege. I will destroy your high places, cut down your shrines, and heap your lifeless bodies on the lifeless bodies of your idols. What an image. You're going to worship false gods? You're going to die on those false gods. That idol's dead. You're going to be just as dead as it is when I get done with you. I will reject you. I will reduce your cities to ruins and devastate your sanctuaries. It's what Nehemiah went back to and rebuilt the wall when he was rebuilding the wall, and later they rebuilt the temple. I will reduce your cities. I did that. I will not smell the pleasing aroma of your sacrifices. You can worship me, but it ain't going to matter because there's not going to be anything behind it. I will also de- devastate the land so that your enemies who come to live there will be appalled by it. But I will scatter you among the nations and I will draw a sword to chase after you so your land will become desolate and your cities will become ruins. You will unconditionally surrender. That's the image here. You can unconditionally surrender or you will be unconditionally surrendered. It, it, kind of like the military, I need three volunteers, you, you, and you. You get voluntold, you don't get to volunteer. Well, in this case, you don't get to volunteer. You can, you, you can unconditionally surrender, or you can be unconditionally surrendered. But let's go back. Let's go back to verses 14, 18, 21, 23, and 27. But if you do not obey me and observe all these commands, verse 14, if, if you don't, okay, and the discipline comes, verse 18, but if after these things you will not obey me. So what's implicit, implicit in that statement? That they had the opportunity to obey. They had the opportunity to return. Verse 21, if you act with hostility toward me and are unwilling to obey me if you don't take the opportunity to turn back the discipline gets ratcheted up but each time repentance is always possible as a matter of fact repentance is always preferred all the way up to verse 40 they are in exile that's the promise we see it when in 722 Samaria the capital of the northern kingdom falls to the Assyrians and they are completely wiped out they are all carted off nobody's left and then in 586 BC when Jerusalem falls to uh, the Babylonians and most of them are carted off to Babylon we see this desolation But in verse 40, but when, not if, when, but when they confess their iniquity, and don't miss this, 
and the iniquity of their fathers. Yes, confessing sins that I didn't commit, but my ancestors did. If you pay attention to social media or the news, you will hear Christians say in some uh, areas, no, we don't have to confess sins that we didn't commit. Biblically, yes we do. Over and over and over. Because it brought us to where we are. When they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers, their unfaithfulness that they practiced against me and how they acted with hostility toward me and I acted with hostility toward them and brought them into the land of their their enemies. And when their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, when they do that, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob. I will also remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. See, repentance is always possible. And repentance is always preferred by God. He wants us to repent. He wanted Israel to repent. He didn't want them to go to Babylon. He didn't want them to get wiped out by Assyria. He didn't want them to experience wars and famine and all the things that, and droughts, all the things that they experienced over the course of our Old Testament. Repentance was always what was preferred. Discipline is always about repentance. So if we find disciplinary hints in our own day in plagues and natural disasters, then there is somewhere we need to repent. Not that, again, not that that is coming on us because it is discipline, but what is the Lord trying to tell us from those things? And then lastly, We need to come to grips with the temporary nature of peace as described in Leviticus. There's this sense of not just the if of verses 14, 18, 21, 23, and 27, but almost a sense, you will, It's conditional, but our sin isn't really conditional, is it? It's not a matter of if we will sin, it is when we will sin. And the guarantee was because, remember they, how soon did Israel start grumbling when they had been freed from Egypt? Like, Hours later? Days later? They get to the Red Sea. Oh, great, Moses. Wow, that was a great turn back there to Albuquerque. You know, we could have gone left, but you went right. Here we are at the Red Sea. What are we going to do now? You brought us out here to die. We, had, we were fine. I mean, we were slaves, and they were killing our kids and all this. Other, but we were fine. At least we weren't staring at a Red Sea that we can't get across. And on and on and on. They started grumbling. They started not worshiping God and seeing comfort 
which is a strange word for slavery, as an idol. Immediately. And that was before this. So God knew, and if the people were honest with themselves, the people knew, oh, this is going to be bad. We're going to mess this up. And they did. We are guaranteed this never-ending cycle of disobedience and discipline and a lack of peace. That is who they were. That's who we are as sinners. I mean, even the peace that is due to law-following is temporary because we are going to break the law. There's none perfect. No, not one. There was never anyone who followed the law perfectly. What God knew and what that Christmas morning, we'll call it that, Christmas, they, it was just, you know, a Tuesday uh, when Jesus was born or whatever day. It wasn't, wasn't a big deal other than to the few people who knew what was going on. What God knew was that the law can never truly provide peace. The law, Paul will tell us in Galatians and other places, really only makes us know how bad we are and how much we need God, how much we need a Savior. But the law can't provide lasting peace. The, the law can't provide permanent peace. Only Jesus can. So as God leads Moses to write Leviticus and, and put these laws down and, and write it all out so people uh, understand it. God was looking forward, but God isn't in time, so He wasn't really looking forward in time. But anyway, that's too hard to, to wrap our heads around. God knew what in our timeline was going to happen. Here is the law. Here are the results for not following the law. You're going to do it. It's going to be bad. It's going to get better. You're going to do it again. It's going to get bad until finally, in the fullness of time, right when it's needed the most, the angels will show up and they will sing glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth. And the people will think we were promised peace if we, if we followed the laws. And God will say, but you didn't follow the laws, did you? Well, then how do we get peace now? How, how is this baby? Can, the shepherds would have been not, well, they probably would have been illiterate, but they would have been familiar with Scripture. If they were Jews, they would have known that if we follow the law, we'll have peace. And they, they get this message of a baby born in Bethlehem that they get to go look at, that they get to be the first ones to witness other uh, than, than mama and, and foster dad. They, they get to be the ones that are right there seeing this newborn baby, and they are told that baby, or because of that baby, there's peace. Isaiah told us he would be the prince of peace. But Michael, I'm still struggling 
to make ends meet. I'm, I'm still struggling to find a job. I have medical issues. There's a war. It ain't, it ain't across geopolitical lines, but it's certainly in the house. I don't have peace. Michael? Yes, you do. If you will utilize it. If you will come to Jesus. If you will lay down your idol of what you think comfort is. We worship comfort. We worship freedom. We worship all these things that we try to put in the place of Jesus. It doesn't say glory to God in the highest heaven and happiness on earth. It doesn't say glory to God in the highest heaven and financial security on earth. All the best jobs on earth. No more pain on earth. No more sickness on earth. It says peace. And when the Prince of Peace comes into our lives, the requirement for peace is met. See, Jesus fulfilled all those laws. Jesus obeyed all those laws. Jesus, in His humanity, in His person, did all the things that we cannot do. And then died on the cross, taking the punishment and paying the debt that we could neither bear nor pay. Jesus brought peace when He took our place. And the peace of Jesus then is a guarantee. We will have peace. We do have peace. We've all known people, I dare say we've all known it in situations. A situation where there's just no logical, legitimate reason that we should have peace other than Jesus inside us. That's all we can chalk it up to. That's all we can label it. That's the only thing we could say. There's people, how can you be so calm? How can you have such peace? Don't you know what's going on? Of course I know what's going on. I'm living it. But didn't this hurt you? Didn't this do? Yes, all those things. But I have peace. And it's a peace that passes understanding. See, we don't even understand it either. We, we wish we could take our hearts out or our brains out and go, oh, okay, that's why I have peace. And it's, it's not. We don't understand it either. But the peace that passes understanding is what we receive from the Jesus, the Prince of Peace, the One who brought peace on earth. The requirement for peace today is the same that it was in Leviticus 26. The same that it was for the Japanese as listed in the terms of the Potsdam Declaration. Unconditional surrender. See, if we think we can still be the ones to negotiate the terms, it wasn't allowed with Israel to God, and it's not allowed with us to Jesus. The sermons are kind of running together I want you to be in charge, but not in control. Nope. 
You're trying to negotiate the terms. I want you as my Savior, but not as my Lord. Nope. You're negotiating the terms. The terms are unconditional surrender. You don't have peace in your life because you're trying to make Jesus in charge while you're in control. You don't have peace in your life. It's because you're trying to have Him as, as Savior, but not as your Lord. And not everything's hunky-dory and wonderful and beautiful and, and, and you're you know, tiptoeing through the tulips with Tiny Tim. You know, it's not that sort of situation that you've got going on when you come to Jesus. It is peace. And it is a guarantee when we unconditionally surrender. One of the biggest problems that the Japanese had with the Potsdam Declaration was the fact that the emperor no longer got to be in charge. Everything in Japan came under the control of the Allies. And whatever they said, that was the rule. That was the law. No more sovereignty until the Allies believed that, they, that Japan could rule itself. That was the biggest sticking point. No, we're not going to give up our sovereignty for peace. And we tell God that ourselves far too often. I'm the emperor of my life. And I am not willing to give up my sovereignty for peace. And we tell God that long before we ever come to Jesus. That's the argument. That's the fight we'll have with the Lord. Well, but I don't want to give up control. I can save myself. I can do it. I can work hard enough to be saved. And even after we've used the words, my Lord and Savior, we take that Lord part back and we want to be the emperor. And that is when we don't have peace. This morning, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you need to give up emperorship of your life. Quit fighting to take that back and surrender unconditionally. You need your own Potsdam Declaration, but you need it daily because we just, eh, eh, no, it's okay, no, but no. Nah. We just, we fight it. But we've got to give it up. Because that fighting isn't peace either. If you're not a believer, if you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, unconditional surrender begins when you say, I cannot save myself and I know that. I cannot be the emperor of my life and do it right. If I try to take over, if I try to be in charge, I will fail and failure, according to Scripture, is death. Romans 6.23 The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. You, you, you want to be in charge? You want to be the emperor? It's got a big paycheck at the end. You get, you get paid. And that payment, your wage, is death. Yay? 
just to be in charge for what's the, av what's the average lifespan? 78 years, 80, 90 years. I get to be in charge of my 90 years on this earth. Woo hoo. And spend eternity separated from God. The wages of sin is death. And sin is you holding on to your emperorship. Holding on to your sinfulness. It is the individual sins you commit, but it is also the unpardonable sin is the sin of never repenting, never giving in, never surrendering. But if we surrender, the terms are clear. If we will unconditionally surrender, the gift of God is eternal life. That cycle that, that, that peace and discipline, peace, then, well, peace, then, 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 um, then sin, then discipline, then peace, then sin, then discipline, that, that, that I, I want to do what I don't want to do, and I don't want to do what I do, and, and, and that struggle that the flesh is always warring against the Spirit, and it will be until the day we go to be with Him. The promise, the peace, comes from the fact that we know that someday we will go to be with Him. The gift of God. The peace of God is eternal life. And it is only found in Christ Jesus. That baby. Peace on earth, the angel said. But not in the baby. We don't worship the baby. I mean, we worship the baby. We come because that's Jesus. But, but that's not where our salvation is found. As I've said probably every Christmas I've ever preached, if we stop at Christmas, then it's just some poor kid born in a bad situation. We don't get to the cross. If we don't get to Easter, that gift on Sunday morning or on a Christmas morning is, our, is where our salvation began. But our salvation was seen, was permanent, permanentized, made permanent on the cross. Well, actually, three days later when he rose from the grave. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you want peace, then you're going to have to surrender to Jesus unconditionally. And you can do that today. Pray with me. Father, thank You that we have peace. As believers, we experience peace. We have our struggles. We have our difficulties we, we, we try to rip that peace, well, we rip it apart, really, by our own stupidity, but we, 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 we have the peace when we surrender to You. Lord, I pray that our prayer daily would be unconditional surrender to You. Lord, this day is Yours, not mine. And we get up tomorrow and say, this day is Yours and not mine, and on and on and on until the day we die, and then that day will be Yours and not ours, and, and, but the eternity, well, eternity will be Yours and not ours, but it will be an eternity with You. Eternity free, an eternity free from sin. For unbelievers here, Lord, I pray that You would speak to hearts. Unbelievers who are listening online right now. Who are hearing this Gospel message and they want peace. God, I pray that You would work on their hearts. That they would not expect peace to mean nothing bad ever happens. But in all the bad, what happens in our hearts with Jesus, that is the peace 
peace that passes understanding. Peace in spite of the bad. Not peace instead of the bad. God, may we know Your peace. May every person here, every person listening, know Your peace in our troubled times. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In this time of decision, maybe you need to accept Christ as Savior. Maybe you would like to talk to somebody about that. Tom Bruce will be at the back at our connection table. A couple of our deacons, Kirk and Lee, will be at the back door. They would love to pray with you. Maybe as a believer, you would like to pray about the, your lack of peace. Maybe you want to share the burden. That's, that's very biblical. Galatians, we share each other's burdens. So we can carry that with you. So you can experience peace. But it's not just going to happen because you talk about it. You've got to give it to Jesus. You have to surrender. So we take this time, just a few minutes, to put into words maybe through song or just to spend some time in prayer surrendering to the Lord. Let's stand, let's sing, and let's let Him work peace on our hearts today.